Radiant, um, what a delight to be with you this morning. Wow, it's been a long time since I've been in this spot. And so as a result of that, I actually want to kind of use about 20 minutes of time for some catching up and some setting up. And then we'll have 15, yeah, it'll be 20 uh, in, in our text today. Uh, with what goes on. So you're welcome to open your Bible up. Thank you, Joel. You're open to open your Bible up to 2 Samuel chapter 1, but we won't get there for a little bit. Uh, I want to start with some catching up. Um, quick story. Last Sunday, I was out front greeting and just had time to do that this summer. It was just a delight of my summer. And I was outside, and while I was out there, um, this really sharp young couple is coming into the building that I didn't know, and I met them for the first time, and uh, hey, great to have you here, and hey, it's great to be here, come to learn they've been coming maybe four times, or this was their fifth time maybe that they were attending here, and so we're talking, and then after a little bit, the husband, he says, uh, uh, so what's your name and what do you do? <laughs> and uh, it was a glorious moment of anonymity for me. And uh, I just loved that moment uh, of time in there. And you may be thinking the same thing. Hey, I've been here for a little while, and who are you? Um, my name's Doug, and I'm actually employed here uh, at this church, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I've actually, over the last 13 years, had the blessed opportunity to kind of be in this seat uh, a good number of times, and uh, this summer has been an opportunity uh, for a number of things, including letting uh, some of our other pastors be able to have this seat, and so grateful for them and bringing you a series through First Peter. So I'm so grateful for Pastor Nick and for, or I'm sorry, Pastor Nate and for I am thankful for Pastor Nick, but <laughs> Pastor uh, Nate and uh, for Eric and for uh, Robbie and Chris and just bringing uh, God's word here this summer. And I don't know if you realize this or not. I think uh, I only say this because hopefully it gives you a little bit of sense of what we want to be as a church, as a, an equipping place kind of a church. And that actually this summer, you had a former Brownsburg police officer, a former Rolls-Royce aeronautical engineer. You had a former missionary to China who taught high school and middle-aged students. And you had, I don't know if a former or present Cornhusker, um, all this summer bring God's word to you. And this allowed them a chance just to develop their skills and their teaching and have face before you. And I think it's good for you to get to know them better. It's also just provided for me some time to be able to do some other things and see, and I'll mention that in just a second, but out of it, I think some of this time has just increased my gratitude for you. Um, thank you for being the kind of church to where, I'll just say it, to where maybe the main guy who's preaching, when he isn't here, you still are. Um, our attendance just all through the summer has just been strong. And I'm just so out on pastoral celebrityism, if that's even a word, I'm just so out on that whole thing. And in this, the fact that the guys were able to have this time bringing God's word and you are here because it's not about a person, it's about the Lord, right? 
And that's uh, what it's all about. So thank you for that. And thank you for just allowing Karen and I some time to do some other things this summer and focus our attention in some other ways. And, and here's a few of those, kind of some other out of the norm things was, is, I'll just say it, it allowed me to have time to be increasingly present and particularly with my family. Just being transparent with you. You know how life gets to where you just get going and rolling and moving and fast and fast and fast and you're present, but you're not really present? Um, this summer just allowed me to have that time with uh, our family and with our uh, kids. In fact, here's a picture of our, our family here if you don't know who they are. And Luke and Kayla uh, live in Plainfield. Uh, Kurt and Emily live in Brownsburg and our grandkids here. And that doesn't have our newest grandchild, Belle, uh, who's, um, yeah, she's special. Just love me time to do that. Um, yeah, guys, sorry, I kind of got out of order. All right. Hey, online, in-house, I'm trying to figure out how to do this again. <laughs> so let me go back a little bit and say uh, that uh, we were able to get some time away. So in May, uh, mid-May, we were able to go out to Bryce National Park, and Karen and I love just being outdoors and doing all that. I mean, that is like God's creativity on display in front of you. And so we had a week just hiking in there. We just loved doing that and pounding the miles in. And then we had the second week where we were at uh, a Zion National Park and just seeing that also in southern Utah and just the greatness of who God is uh, just right there before your face. And then I was able to have five days. Uh, Karen came home, and I spent five days out in Flagstaff and Grand Canyon area. A pastor friend of mine just let me stay at his house. They were actually gone, and just it was one of those no internet, no TV, they're going to the Grand Canyon, kind of some, what I would call some burning bush moments with the Lord. Not because it was crazy hot there, uh, but just because it really wasn't, but just some times alone with the Lord and so grateful for that. And then the beginning of June when coming back, that's when I was able just to kind of come and be here present in some ways, made mention with our family, also just being able to have the time uh, to have a Sunday in July to fill in for Brian White, a pastor friend at Harvest Church up in Carmel. And fill in for him on a weekend, it allowed me to do some reading. I just, over 1,500 pages of reading on church structure and leadership. Now, does that sound like a party or what? And, but seriously, just with things we're working on to just invest time in doing that. I also just kind of out of the blue, it has a little bit of tie to later on here, but able to be freed up to grab lunch with a seminary buddy of mine, uh, William Payne. William and I were best friends in seminary. William grew up in uh, inner city Washington, D.C. I grew up in suburban uh, Midwest. Two guys you would not think would have uh, similar things, but I'll tell you, our diverse backgrounds about the same thing. It was just sweet time. And William was out here with his daughter on a, a tournament. And uh, just 20 years later, can we get together? Um, and just having that time, just so sweet. Love the dude. He's a director of Fellowship of Christian Athletes at Syracuse University. And God's just using him in some really cool ways. It also just allowed us time to have here on Sundays. Uh, so we spent uh, Sunday uh, doing uh, children's check-in, at least I did, and scared the living life out of me. 
doing that because I'm not a computer guy and really I didn't help much <laughs> in that, but just being able to meet uh, families and kids. And then we had a Sunday where Karen and I taught first through fifth grade Sunday school class. And then for the second, third service, did the table time with third graders. And I used to do that every week uh, in, in my days past and just missed that. I'm out of practice with that with the kids, but just loved that time with them. And then just time greeting outside on Sundays and having the face-to-face that I just normally don't get. And I'm just bringing all this up because I'm kind of leading to this. It has renewed a gratitude for you uh, in my soul. All that takes place just even on a Sunday here with the parking lot people, with the greeter doors and here in the lobby at the cafe counter with children's check-in, children's ministry, the security team, the worship center greeters, the facility care group, the the worship uh, team, the tech team. I just goes on and on. Every Sunday there are hundreds of people that are serving here and they serve because they love Jesus. And I just want to say thank you because oftentimes uh, in my role, I don't necessarily take the time to do that. And thank you for the kind of people that you are. And lastly, I'll note these last nine weeks have just provided me extra time to work with our elders and with our pastors on visioning. Uh, we're right now in a visioning for the future process. Uh, we've, we're working, being led by an outside advisor on this and just three thinking, and I'll say it this way. My what God has done in the last 13 years. Never did a group of people meeting in a home and praying and then 90 people uh, deciding to have a church service over in a movie theater wondering if anyone else would show up. Never did we think this would happen. And out of this over the years and all of what God has done, it's time to kind of re-firm up. Where are we headed into the future? Maybe this is the question is, is so uh, by God's grace and the work of the Holy Spirit, by 2030, Radiant Bible Church will be what? And we're working on that. Just want you to know that. And so I've been able just to have added time to invest in with doing that. So grateful for the past, but you don't want to get stuck in the past. So grateful for the present, but you don't want to just get stuck in the present as leadership. We want to be looking ahead at what the Lord would have for us. And as time goes on in the months ahead, we'll be talking with you about some of that and Yet in it, here's what I know. I know that by God's grace, we're the kind of church that regardless of what maybe some of the the nuts and bolts of what has in the future might look like, we know this. We want to be a people that is all about pointing people to a passionate pursuit of a radiant God. Amen? And that's what we want to be about, and that's who you are, and I'm so grateful for that. So, Lord, I'm just going to pause here and say thank you for where you've brought us, and thank you for what you've done. God, even for me personally, having this summer to focus in some different ways, I'm grateful for that. And, Lord, we are a diverse group of people here in our lives and careers and stages and situations and all that. And, God, we are unified around this thing. We want to have an increasing, passionate pursuit of you. We want you front and center. So God, I pray, whatever the details are, we want you out front. Before us, running after you, passionately so, because you are awesome. 
So we say it, God, help us be that. In your name we pray, amen. Well, today we enter 2 Samuel. Uh, sermon series title is uh, Sustained in Adversity. Uh, earlier this year as a church, we walked through the latter half of 1 Samuel. This summer we went through 1 Peter, uh, but that 1 Samuel series was raised through adversity. It really kind of has a tone in with what's going on in David's life, but this is not a series about become like David. This is about a series of who our God is, and we want to become what God would want us to be. And so yet God is raising David through adversity, and really we come to 2 Samuel, and you would think that here in a little bit, as David is put in as the king of Israel, that you'd think everything would get rosy and wonderful and sweet and chocolate bunnies and dove dark chocolates for every meal. I would say amen to that. Um, but actually, this is 2 Samuel, it, it, this is going to be a tough series because it's filled with a lot of tough stuff that's going on with it. But we're going to dive in and we're going to go through it. And, and God sustains David through the adversities for the Lord's glory. And you might be asking, man, Doug, when I add all this up, this ends up being as a church, we've spent, we're gonna have spent seven months in the Old Testament. Why would we spend seven months in the Old Testament? Well, part of me would just go, would kind of be like, well, why not? But I don't know if that's super helpful. So let me give you kind of three reasons as to why uh, we're a church that is not only about the New Testament, we're also about the Old Testament. Reason number one is because all of God's word is valuable and profitable. Because all of God's word is valuable and profitable. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. It's not some mankind just a drummed up thing. God put his breath in this. This is God's, you want to know who God is? This is where you go to know who he is. And all of scriptures God breathed, verse 17, that the man of God, that the woman of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We don't want to just go to know God. We want to go to know God and be equipped for him. And then Hebrews 15, 4 says, for whatever was written in former days, which Paul writing to the Romans would have been referring to the Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I mean, think about that. Here is this Jewish guy who hated Christians for a season of his life. And then the Lord Jesus, the resurrected, magnified, glorified Jesus Christ, shows up on the road to Damascus, grabs a hold of him. Uh, Paul comes to Jesus by Jesus coming to him. And in that, now is at that place where he is the minister of the gospel to the Gentiles. And he is taking it out to the Gentiles. And you would be thinking that in many ways, boy, that would be a time to say, you know, all that Old Testament stuff, yeah, you don't need to pay attention to that. But actually, Paul is writing to Roman Christians. I'm telling you, friends, Roman Christians are so like us today. I mean, a, a successful world, uh, dominating things, uh, and frankly, proud and wealthy. And, and in it, Paul says, hey, uh, you Roman Christians, you know that Old Testament thing? Don't forget about it. It's for us as well. It's for our instruction and our hope. So uh, not only is because God's word valuable and profitable, because uh, also secondly, because all of the gospel story is wrapped around the whole story. Just succinctly, 
The gospel story of Jesus Christ put boots on the ground, second person of the Trinity, to die on the cross, to do for you and I what we could not do for ourselves, making his gift of his work available to any who would receive, that by grace through faith alone in Christ alone you are saved in Christ. And the one who uh, did that, not only is it the gospel story, but when we understand the whole from the beginning to the end of the story, the gospel story makes increasing sense and increasing beauty out of it. And so the gospel story is wrapped around the whole story. The Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. The New Testament reveals Jesus Christ. And so we're all about the whole. So because all of God's word is valuable and profitable. Secondly, because the gospel story is wrapped around the scripture story. And third, because I'm just going to say this is my passion as a pastor and particularly as a teaching pastor. My passion is that God's people and that people would fall in love with God's word again. And the reason I said again is for some, you may have had a love for the Bible and it's kind of become not a love. For others, you may have grown up to where you've kind of been taught or given the perspective that, that the Bible is kind of just some ancient, dusty, old, moralistic, Aesop's fables kind of a whatever thing. I want to tell you, friends, when I began as a young adult seeing that this isn't just telling about who God is, but it is alive and vibrant and crazy awesome, give me a passion to where I want others to see it. 70% of God's word is written in narrative. We should feel it. We should grab it. We should enjoy it. We should fall in love with our Bibles because if we have a low view of scripture, we will have a low view of God. But if we have a big view of Scripture, we will have an increasingly big view of God. So that's why the Old Testament, um, and plus why not? So with that, Bible's open on your lap, 2 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, if you use one of the Bibles there, it's page 237. As you look at this page, you see 2 Samuel at the top, and here's a question. Where are we entering like, what's the context of where we're entering? I think it's important to set that. So if you would allow me a couple minutes to tell the story. Genesis. God creates all things. And in that creation, God puts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, heaven on earth. But in that, Adam and Eve essentially, though tempted, they essentially on their own, make this decision that they would prefer a 2.0 version written by themselves on what life would be like on this God-created world. Sin enters because they bite it, literally. The curse of sin enters, the world enters in chaos. Genesis 6, Noah. God essentially does a reboot. Abraham Sarah, Abram, I want to take you and I want to make a nation out of you, a people who will be, a shining, who will be shining stars for me on this planet, even amongst this chaos. Abram and Sarah, then Isaac, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob, Leah, Rachel, Joseph, talking about a dysfunctional family, there you go. Every family's dysfunctional. 
ever since sin entered, and it was especially dysfunctional in their family when his brothers sold him to be a slave in Egypt. So Joseph, under God's sovereign hand, Joseph ends up going over to Egypt. Story moves into Exodus. It's been 400 years of time, and the Hebrews coming off of Joseph and Jacob's family have been raised up there for 400 years in slavery. Moses enters the scene. Aaron enters the scene. You've seen the movie. Let my people go. The plagues, the Passover, crossing of the Red Sea, Mount Sinai, God rumbles the mountain. Exodus 19, Moses, I want to raise a nation of priests to the world. I will give you a place, just like I told Abraham, and you will be a people to the world, the tabernacle, the traveling temple. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, God is after building a people that rightly, might I say it this way, as we have posted on our walls, that rightly worship Yahweh, walk with Yahweh, and work uh, for Yahweh. And he's building an unlike people in a broken world to be lights among a very dark world. Joshua, they're not yet in the promised land. Moses dies. Joshua, I will be with you. I I will uh, not leave you. I will not forsake you. Boy, what a cool thing that is. Joshua, be strong and courageous. Why? Not because Joshua is awesome, but because God is awesome. Because I am with you, and you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I promised to their fathers. God has not forgotten what he has promised to take place. It's just on God's sovereign timing, not ours. They're at the Jordan, uh, chapter 3 of Joshua. They cross over and they enter into their sending base place called the promised land. Judges, they're in the promised land. And it's like 400 years of God's people being crazy for the most part, dysfunctional. It's described in summary as uh, doing what is right in their own eyes. Hmm, does that maybe sound familiar in our day and age? We get it. They get it. First Samuel, Hannah. Oh, Lord, would you please give me a child? And if you do, I will give him to you. Samuel. Prophet and priest. The people beg for a king like all the other nations around them. Wait, God has called them to be an unlike people. And yet they beg for a king like the other nations around them. So God's like, okay, I I can do that for you. Are you sure if that's what you want? So here, I'll give you six two-foot good-looking Saul. And so God did. 20-plus years later, Yahweh is like, you know what? I've I've got someone else I'm going to build who's has a heart for me. Samuel goes to Bethlehem. By the way, isn't that interesting? Samuel goes to Bethlehem to Jesse's family. Hey, Jesse, bring your sons in front of me. Uh, No, not him. I thought it was, but no, not him. No, not him. No, not him. Hey, Jesse, do you have any other sons? Yeah, I got one who's out tending the sheep. Oh, call him in. David comes in. Him. Him. 
He's the one the Lord would have to become king one day. How old is David? David could be 15, David could be 16, David could be a maximum of 20 at that time. I wonder what David was thinking in that. I just want to be a shepherd, man. Like, is anyone going to ask me if I want to do that? And then we saw in 1 Samuel 17 in the latter half, instead of God going, David, I'm going to take you and I'm going to put you right on the throne right now. God brings David and raises him through adversity after adversity after adversity after adversity, some 10 years on the run. David is selected, he's put in the palace to play the, 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 the harp for, to soothe Saul's soul. And then we have the big WWF event of, of him taking down Goliath and then he's on the run. For over a decade, David is on the run and yet God is doing a work in him. And it would see humanly like, God, what are you doing, man? It seems like you're just messing with the dude. And yet God is building, and we come into 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, and we finish uh, 1 Samuel with Saul put himself on his own spear in the battle and died. And so we enter 2 Samuel. Let's take a few minutes. Let's go through the first half of the chapter. My goal here today is to whet our appetite as we get into the rest of the series. Verses 1 through 16. Verse one, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained how many days? Two days in Ziklag. Ziklag was that uh, uh, city over in Philistine territory that uh, David and his men had, were, and, and their families were living in for a year and a half or so. And, and, and so he re- comes back, remember, uh, end of Samuel, David is fighting against the Amalekites. He had wanted to go in this and he had to, God sovereignly brought him down. He's fighting against the Amalekites. That's important to know that. So he comes back. It's only been a couple days since that. Verse two, and on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp, in other words, Samuel picks, 2 Samuel picks up Saul, isn't dead yet, from Saul's camp, uh, from his clothes torn, with dirt on his head, and he came to David, he fell on the ground, paid homage. So here's the bottom line, Saul, at about 70 years old, King Saul is dead. Uh, David, late 20s, um, probably, I'm going to say 29, because he comes, he's 30 when he becomes king here, and not too long. And then there's this guy, this man, who's uh, later on we'll see he's termed as a young man, uh, likely somehow a soldier in it all. We're not even told what side he's actually a soldier on. Um, It's an interesting movement of it. We're not told all the details, but he's likely in his early 20s, 21, 22, 23, and we come up and all of a sudden he comes to David and Ziklag and he's just looking like a mess. Why? Because he just hightailed it some 80 to 100 miles from Mount Gaboa, as we'll find out in just a second, to David and Ziklag. He's there and he's got something. He's just got to tell King David about, or David's not the king yet, but David about, right? at this point. So he's all a mess. And so we come to verse three and David said to him, where do you come from? I mean, it's like, understand David is not in a palace. David is not king yet. He's over in Ziklag in Philistine territories. The home is likely a tent with what's going on. And this guy comes rushing in and he's like, where do you come from? And uh, he answers and he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And I'm telling you right there, David's ears perked up. 
Because at the end of 1 Samuel, David uh, wanted to go into this battle. It was all a weird situation. Uh, they wouldn't let him go. And now he's hearing information about the battle that David wanted to be a part of in a very weird way. And so here he's about to learn what's going on. And what does a good leader do? A good leader asks questions. And we're seeing David's ask one out of five questions. Friends, good leaders ask questions. Parents, good leaders ask questions. Business people, good leaders ask questions. And the second question is, how did it go? Tell me. You're getting a sense. David wants to know. I mean, uh, how did the battle go? And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul, the king, and his son Jonathan are also dead. It's interesting, because right there, what's going on in David's mind right there? Because right at this moment, we know that David, for the past 10, 12 plus years has been running from his, for his life from King Saul. And might there be a moment in David where he's like, oh, thank you, God. The adversity is done. Let's follow David. How did it go? Tell me. Well, the people fled. Saul is dead. Jonathan is dead. And David said to the young man who followed, who followed him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? Friends, the leader asks questions, and I think we can begin actually to see in this question this thing of David wants to know verified information on what's going on. I actually think right here we're going to see David has suspicions about this guy. How do you know that? By the way, you might say, Doug, why do you think that? Because friends, I don't think we understand particularly in that day when the king and the king's son are in battle, they are not put on the front line. And I think David is beginning his inquiry here of trying to learn, because like, that, wait a second, there's something odd about this, because David was uh, an arm bearer of Achish, a king. He knew Saul and all of this. And in this, David, I think, is beginning to weed out and sense out what's really going on here. How did you know that they're dead? And verse six, and the young man who told him, this is his longest answer, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when Saul looked upon him, he, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, here I am. And King Saul said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. That's important. And then King Saul said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed King Saul, because I was sure that he would not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord." Friends, on first read, you read through this and it sounds good, but when then when you sit back, you start going, hold on a second here. I'm gonna cut to the chase of it. The dude's playing the situation. He's playing the situation. He's playing the short game in this. There's some problems with his reply. 
Number one, he says that chariots and the horsemen are on Mount Gilboa. Now, Mount Gilboa is not like Mount Zion, where it's just like straight up vertical. But I'm also telling you that chariots in that day going on Mount Gilboa, which is more like the Smoky Mountains kind of terrain with it, would generally never happen. And he's bringing this in. And by the way, 1 Samuel, we're told by the narrator that archers surrounded uh, uh, Saul. Here, we're, as readers, we're being told that this guy's saying chariot surrounded him. Something's fishy here um, in this. Uh, also, when he says, I'm an Amalekite, I'm telling you in this, David knew that when Saul heard he was an Amalekite, when he replied, I'm an Amalekite, and then Saul said, kill me, Saul never would have done that. Because you are an Israelite king, and you are learning that this guy is an Amalekite, who is a foreigner, who Amalekites, by the way, they had a hatred with Israel at the time. And going all the way back to the Exodus to when the Amalekites would not let them pass through that. And King Saul would not have said, have an Amalekite kill me. That wouldn't have happened. And yet in this, the Amalekite, I think, is playing the situation. And also with the crown and the armlet of it. I just don't have the time today to go through all the details other than just say, I'm telling you, the things on the table of what he's saying is the typical, you know what? We only have one life to live and we got with this crazy opportunity right before us. So take it and go with it. Make the sale whatever it takes. Because I have this situation on the table to where I can go and I can reword it and retell it and it'll be gain for me, for this young Amalekite. And when you are living in that world, there is a tendency to think that everybody else lives in that world. And I think, and others think reading this text, that the Amalekite comes upon a situation in his 80-mile journey down is working on the situation, thinking that when I tell David about this, David is going to be like, finally, Saul's dead and I'm king. In other words, this Amalekite is thinking everybody else thinks like I think. I play for the short game. And he is about to meet someone who doesn't play the short game of life. And friends, if you remember nothing else in this time out of this first part, this is a contrast between a young man playing the short game of life, meeting a young man who's not. And he's playing life for the Lord in the long game. And there's a lesson in that. So he tells us, I think he's thinking David is like, Bam, I'm king now. And what happens? Verse 11, then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them and so did all the men who were with him and they mourned and they wept and fasted until evening for Saul, for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel. I don't have time this week. I'm going to make some reference because next Sunday we're going to do the latter half, which is lament, which comes out of this verse. This is the thing that he laments over with these. And David is seeing the long game. 
King Saul is down. He's actually sad about that. Jonathan, his buddy, whom he just had a close relationship with, that's part of the reason I put William up on the thing. Man, we just had this thing, and during seminary time, we're just like bros together in this, though from completely different worlds. Uh, David from the sheep pen, and Jonathan from the king's palace. And also, he's lamenting over the consequences of the Lord's people in the house of Israel on what's taking place. And I think this is the moment when the Amalekite is all of a sudden shocked that someone else is responding to an opportunity to make the big play, and they're not playing it the way he plays it. And we're actually seeing someone who's playing the short game watching someone who has an eye on who Yahweh is and the sovereignty of God in his own life. And so till evening that happens. And then David, verse 14, said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? I'm sorry, right before that, he says, where did you come from? In other words, where are you from? He answers, I'm a sojourner of an Amalekite. In other words, he likely grew up in Israel. His father was an Amalekite. He, therefore, he likely grew up within the territory of Israel as a foreigner. And in that, he therefore knew who Saul was. He knew who David was. He knew the laws of the land. And what he had just done was treasonous as a result. And out of this treason, David then says, how is it you are not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then David called one of the young men and said, go, execute him. Oof. And He struck him down and so he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head. In other words, your own words have brought your guilt before you. For you... For your own mouth has testified against you, saying that you killed the Lord's anointed. So many things more could be said, but let me just sum it up this way. Three items of instruction with hope. Number one, wow, this sojourner, as I've been talking about, this sojourner Amalekite is playing the wrong game. Question, are you two? Friend, it is so easy to get caught up in the fullness and the busyness and the hecticness and the voices of life around us and get in the game of the short game of life. And so, you know, at work, we kind of tell the truth, but maybe not the whole truth. Or at school, we, we, we maybe, you know, write a couple things on our hand just in case we need that. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. You know, life is just the way it is, and so we need to learn to play it well to get what we want. That's the game he's playing. Our world says play your cards right, go for it, make the sale, do whatever you have to. Manipulate it because it's all about prosperity. It's all about advancement. It's about your own self-security. It's about your own self-comfort. It's about more st stuff and more power and more position and more recognition. But that's the short games, friend. And that's not the game God's people play because God's people play for the long game. Secondly, wow, this late 20s David, he's about the right thing. 
We'll see that as we continue on. David certainly is not perfect, but here's this kid in the sheep pens, and over these years of adversity, God has raised him up to be this kind of a guy, the kind of a guy that asks insightful wisdom questions, seeking to discern what's really going on, because he understands how people can be, and he knows even how himself can be. And he's trying to understand what's taking place. And I just sit back and I go, how cool it is where God has brought him. And I pray that over the next 10, 12, 15 years of my life and your life that we would have similar stories. Wow, look at where God has brought us. There's hope and encouragement in that. And lastly, I just want to note this. All of this series, all of God's word, all of First and Second Samuel, it is not about David. It is about a big God. This is not a series for a history lesson. This is also not a series just to pump you up to become all that you can be for the moment. This is a series about us understanding who God is and what God is doing, including this. God allows adversities in life to mature us because God is not a pampering God. God is a perfecting God. And in the movement of that, as we've seen that in David's life, I will tell you one of the things that this being recorded down and this event taking place that is penned down proves on the table, provides for the people a written reality that David had nothing to do with King Saul's death. Say it this way, God is protecting David in this event. Not only is God allowing David to show the reality of who he is and what he's about, but God is actually protecting David in this from those who would say he rejoiced in King Saul's death or he was a part of King Saul's death. No, 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 we have it written here. That's not the fact on the table. And God made that happen. And also in this, when is David gonna become king? Answer, in God's sovereign time. For you and I, I can just tell you for me, I just want to fast pass it to total maturity in Christ. And I don't know about you, but that hasn't happened. Because God has sovereign time in mind. And I don't know what you're in right now, what the heavy is right now, what's aching you right now, what's pushing you right now, but I do want you to know this. A sovereign God is in it for the purpose of somehow maturing you to know him better, to see him bigger, to prepare you for something down the road. And you and I want out of the pressure like the watermelon seed, but God's like James chapter one, remain there, remain there, remain there. I'm doing a work. Through all of the adversity in David's life, God's been at work. So we'll pick up next week. So Lord, thank you for who you are, for what you've done, for all that has taken place over time and through all kinds of people. And Lord, we have your written truths to help us just embrace and get in and do a work in our lives. So Lord, I thank you for this church family church family that I believe truly wants to lean into you. And God, I pray, would you continue to lean into us? 
And Lord, in this, maybe someone in this room has been living the short game. Just trying to get what can get for this period of time. Oh. Lord, every one of us can fall into that mode every day. God, I pray through this we'd be reminded of your work. Second person of the Trinity coming to die on the cross, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, providing that work available to all who would receive. Lord, maybe there's someone in this room who doesn't really know you as their savior. I pray they would talk with someone. Lord, for those of us who have received you as our savior, I pray that you would continue your maturing work in our lives. Show us. Give us hope. Help us. We're broken people living in a broken world. But we have a redeemer that has done the full work and is at work in us. So thank you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.